You're entering Outer Brightness. Hey Fireflies, the Apostate Paul here. Welcome to this bonus episode of Outer Brightness, From Mormon to Jesus. I'm recording a new intro for this episode because since Matthew the Nuclear Calvinist and I recorded this episode on July 1st, the state of affairs has changed. So in this intro, I'm going to provide a quick timeline. In 2012 or 2013, the LDS Church began publishing Gospel Topics essays designed to allow church members to learn about difficult topics in LDS Church history and doctrine directly from the church's official website rather than other online sources. These essays have the imprimatur of the First Presidency of the LDS Church and acknowledge the reliance on the work of scholars in crafting the essays. In the early 2000s, when I was in the midst of my period of deep questioning and wrestling with my Mormon beliefs, what many call a faith crisis, there were many online apologetics resources, FAIR, Shields, Ask Gramps. I remember that in the discussion boards, if someone posted an article from one of those resources in response to a question, it was often lamented that the LDS church leadership did not put their stamp of approval on those answers. Struggling members wondered if they could trust the apologetic resources. Many surmised that the Gospel Topics essays were designed to do just that, to inoculate church members against difficult topics. The relationship of the LDS church to the essays, however, has been thorny. Some have documented edits that have been made without acknowledgement, and the essays are not easy to find on the website. You won't stumble on them unless you know what you're looking for. Many who have left over the past seven to eight years have cited the essays as sources that caused them to question their beliefs and noted that when they spoke with local ecclesiastical leaders about the essays and the questions that they caused, many local leaders were not even aware of the essay's existence. On June 23rd of 2021, Fred Anson shared with us that one of the Gospel Topics essays, the one titled Becoming Like God, had disappeared from the LDS Church's website, but was still available in the Gospel Library app available for mobile devices. Matthew and I had already discussed doing a series of episodes on the essays, so we fast-tracked this one. We recorded this episode on July 1st. At that time, the link for the Becoming Like God essay was still on the website, churchofjesuschrist.org, but it redirected to a different essay titled, Are Mormons Christian? The disappearance of the Becoming Like God essay was widely noted in online ex-Mormon communities, and many were speculating that maybe the LDS Church was seeking to distance itself from the doctrines discussed therein. Doctrines which perhaps more than any other LDS doctrines place Mormonism outside the mainstream of Orthodox Christian beliefs. The fact that the link redirected to an essay aimed at answering the question, are Mormons Christian, furthered that speculation. On TikTok, an ex-Mormon named Exmo Lex pointed out that the frequently asked questions in the newsroom section of the LDS Church website expressly denies that Latter-day Saint scripture or doctrine teaches that exalted Mormons will get their own planets, even though LDS leaders have taught that as doctrine for almost two centuries and as recently as 2018, when current LDS prophet and president Russell M. Nelson taught the traditional LDS doctrine on this point. He said, A fourth gift from our Savior is actually a promise, a promise of life everlasting. This does not mean simply living for a really, really, really long time. Everyone will live forever after death, regardless of the kingdom or glory for which they may qualify. Everyone will be resurrected and experience immortality. But eternal life is so much more than a designation of time. Eternal life is the kind and quality of life that Heavenly Father and His beloved Son live. When the Father offers us everlasting life, He is saying, in essence, if you choose to follow my Son, if your desire is really to become more like Him, then in time you may live as we live 
and preside over worlds and kingdoms as we do. It seemed odd that the LDS Church would seemingly be distancing itself from this doctrine, but the LDS Church has repudiated core doctrine and practice before. Over the weekend of July 3rd and 4th, the essay in the mobile app began to disappear for those users whose apps had completed content refreshes. On the website, the essay no longer rerouted. It simply became circular, such that if you clicked on the link for Becoming Like God, you landed on another page with a link to Becoming Like God. It's almost as if the LDS church was trolling and the link became like the eternity mirrors in the ceiling rooms of their temples. Then on July 7th, the essay appeared back online without comment. I used archive.org's Wayback Machine to pull a version from May 18th and compared it to the July 7th version to see if edits had been made. The only change was the removal of the original publication date of February 2014. So for now, we close this odd bit of Mormon history, still unsure why the essay disappeared for a couple of weeks and which declaration of the LDS Church should be taken as doctrine, that made by the LDS newsroom staff or that made by the current prophet and president of the church. Even so, Matthew and I read each section of the essay in this episode and discuss it. The full episode is close to three hours, so in this first part, we're bringing you the first two sections of the essay, Overview and What Does the Bible Say About Humans' Divine Potential? So the first section is titled Overview. One of the most common images in Western and Eastern religions alike is of God as a parent and of human beings as God's children. Billions pray to God as their parent, invoke the brotherhood and sisterhood of all people to promote peace, and reach out to the weary and troubled out of deep conviction that each of God's children has great worth. But people of different faiths and uh, people of different faiths understand the parent-child relationship between God and humans in significantly different ways. Some understand the phrase "child of God." as an honorary title reserved only for those who believe in God and accept his guidance as they might accept the father's. Many see parent-child descriptions of God's relationship to humanity as metaphors to express his love for his creations and their dependence on his sustenance and protection. Latter-day Saints see all people as children of God in a full and complete sense. They consider every person divine in origin, nature, and potential. Each has an eternal core and is a beloved spirit son or daughter of heavenly parents. Each possesses seeds of divinity and must choose whether to live in harmony or tension with that divinity. Through the atonement of Jesus Christ, all people may progress toward perfection and ultimately realize their divine destiny, close quote. Um, just as a child can develop the attributes of his or her parents over time, the divine nature that humans inherit can be developed to become like their heavenly fathers. The desire to nurture the divinity in his children is one of God's attributes that most inspires, motivates, and humbles members of the church. God's loving parentage and guidance can help each willing, obedient child of God receive of his fullness and of his glory. This knowledge transforms the, Latter -day, the way Latter-day Saints see their fellow human beings. The teaching that men and women have the potential to be exalted to a state of godliness clearly expands beyond what is understood by most contemporary Christian churches and expresses for the Latter-day Saints a yearning rooted in the Bible to live as God lives, to love as he loves, and to prepare for all that our loving Heavenly Father, sorry, our loving Father in Heaven wishes for his children. Quick question. Do you hear the tone when I come off of mute? Uh, no. Okay. That's only on my side. That's cool. All right. Um, so let's talk about this section really quick. Do, do you have any thoughts uh, you want to general thoughts you want to share on this section? Man, uh, <laughs> you know, like the more I've been like studying uh, Aquinas and like, you know, uh, confessionalism and like, you know, divine simplicity. I was just reading that and just like my, my <laughs> like my ears are ringing with like the heresy alarm, you know, just buzzing off because like when you, when you look at, the, the, the early councils when the, the debates over who Christ is, their view was that Christ is God because he's divine. And, and, and like divinity is something that differentiates God from every other being. So in parts of this where it says that, uh, like the part where I said, Latter-day Saints see all people as children of God in a full and complete sense. They consider every person divine in origin, nature, and potential. If, a, if an early church father were to hear this, they would, they would read that and see, oh, they're saying that we are just as much God as God is, you know, that's, they don't, they don't see, they didn't understand the divine nature to change or to become like in that same paragraph, it says, just as a child can develop the attributes of his or her parents over time, the divine nature that humans inherit can be developed to become like their heavenly fathers. So it's like they, they see, 
or at least according to this, uh, to this gospel talk, the essay, the way they're describing it is that the divine nature is something that is corrupt or imperfect, and it can become a perfected divine nature. And such a thing is like completely foreign to the entire church. So, uh, yeah, so those are kind of thoughts that I had. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I, I agree with you as I was reading through it in preparation for, uh, for this, and for this uh, episode, I, I noted that the essay uh, doesn't really begin with a doctrine of God uh, and God's nature. Um, rather, it begins with a doctrine of man and or humanity and and its potential. Um, and so it, it it immediately kind of took my mind to when I was first beginning to study systematic theology and, and reading about um, theocentric theologies versus anthropocentric theologies. Um, a theocentric theology uh, begins with God and God's nature, what kind of being God is, um, and then works from there to creation, humanity, uh, sin, the fall, salvation, uh, and and ultimately the whole plan of God. Um, but this essay, you know, focuses on immediately on kind of what Latter-day Saints see as the potential of humanity. So it's a, it, it kind of marks Latter-day Saint theology as, a, as an anthropocentric uh, theology. And so what, what I mean by that is, is human-centered, right? And a lot of times when we talk to Latter-day Saints online, um, yes, there is a focus, as there is here on the essay, in the essay on God as parent, um, but there is also very much a, a focus from Latter-day Saints on their own potential, what they can become. Um, and it's, it's very human centered. And there's a reasoning when, when they think about uh, who God is, they reason from the human to the divine, right? We are physical, we are uh, alive, and we will eventually be like God as this, as this essay claims. Um, and so they reason from, our nature as humans to, well, God must be like that only better. Right. And um, that, that way of thinking, that way of reasoning in an anthropocentric way in a human centered way uh, is driven by their theology. Um, it, it's, it's something that they come, come by honestly through receiving the teachings of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I don't fault them for it. Um, but I'd just like to call out that, that that is what they do. And it is, it's what I did until, um, until I no longer believed the unique truth claims of the Latter-day Saint movement and, and branched out outside of, uh, that faith. So, um, that's just kind of my overall, uh, initial thoughts on this section, but, um, I wanted to kind of focus in on a couple of things that are said within as well. Um, there's the line that says some understand the phrase child of God as an honorary title reserved only for those who believe in God and accept his guidance as they might accept a father's. Uh, so Matthew, isn't, isn't that the biblical view that, that we are adopted as children of God, uh, as kind of called out in, for example, John 1, 12? Yeah. When, when we got to that line, I was, I am not quite entirely sure if they're saying that that, you know, if that was a direct reference to what Christians believe, or, you know, maybe they're trying to be general and say, well, not specifically Christians, but yeah, that's one thing I thought about that. But in terms of uh, what we believe, I think it's uh, partially true because it, it sounds like, uh, let me reread that. Uh, uh, let's see. As honorary title reserved only for those who believe in God and accept his guidance as they might accept a father. So they still, it seems like it's describing that father sonhood or parent or father childhood to a Christian, if that's what it's referring to is what Christians, it seems like they're saying that it's more of just like a, a mentor mentee relationship, you know, like God. God gives instructions and you follow them. And that that's what makes you father and son. But I think, I think the, the Christian view of adoption is much more than, than just a mentor mentee relationship. You know, it's, it's we're we're becoming, we know God in a personal and loving way. Um, God knows us. Uh, we strive to become like him. We love and, and worship him. Uh, we strive to become conformed to Christ's image and the Holy Spirit works in us to do so, to, to work us to become like Christ. And so it's, it's not just God gives us directions and we follow them. It's 
there is a real relationship there. There is a loving relationship there. So it's it's part of the it's part of the way there, but not quite. Um, what what do you think about that? Yeah, I I agree with that, and I would go I would go a step further that you know the the big difference here is um, you know what's being set up here in the essay is the idea that uh, we can become like God because we are already like God by nature. Um, there's not a uh, creator creature distinction um, between God and humanity, and so. Um, that, that to me is, is very different than, you know, you said your, your heresy (laughs) meters were going off. Uh, that, that to me is very different than what I see, uh, in the Bible. So, you know, for example, John 1, 12 to 13 says, but as many as received him referring to Jesus Christ to them, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So when, when believers are adopted children of God, um, it's, a, it's a birth from above, right? It's a birth from God, as John 1.13 says, um, but it's not something that we have uh, as humans by nature. Um, as verse 12 says, but as many received him, to them he gave power to become the children, children of God. So it, it's something that you receive uh, from God as grace after you have uh, received Jesus Christ as your savior. Um, so Latter-day Saints are, are, you know, they'll commonly say that that we are literally children of God. And, what, you know, we've talked a little bit about it before in other episodes, Matthew. What, what do Latter-day Saints mean when they say literally children of God? Yeah, I guess it depends on which Latter-day Saint you're talking to. But uh, traditionally, there was this view that in some form or fashion that God the Father, uh, in conjunction with um, Heavenly Mother, so our Heavenly Parents, were in some form or fashion the literal parents of our spirits. So they don't really know how that works, but we were originally in eternity past spirit intelligences that were uncreated and eternal, just as God is uncreated and eternal. And these spirit intelligences were formed into spirit bodies by our Heavenly Parents, and then that became us um, in the pre-mortal life. So that's kind of how they were our literal parents. All right. Um, so just want to take a quick step back a little bit. Um, you know, talking again about the, the, uh, anthropocentric versus theocentric, uh, approach to theology. Um, the approach you just kind of laid out there, which was, is the traditional Latter-day Saint view, right? Heavenly parents, um, in some form or fashion, we are spiritual offspring of those heavenly parents, uh, at least the uh, core essence of us, right? So our spirits or our intelligences are uh, literal offspring of heavenly parents. Uh, that view, again, it's, it's a very anthropocentric view. It, it reasons from what we know of, of existence and procreation between husband and wife, and it, and it kind of casts that onto the heavens and onto God, right? And and says God is this in nature because man is this in nature. Um, so I want you know the question as we're working through this essay, the question really is what what is the truth? That's what you know. I think you and I, Matthew, both want Latter Day Saints to ask that question, right? What is the truth here? Um, and the truth, uh, what we can know of it, depends on God absolutely, and what God has revealed. Uh, I want to share a passage from the Faith Once for All uh, Bible Doctrine for Today uh, from Dr. Jack, Jack Cottrell, uh, who I studied under at, at uh, Cincinnati Bible Seminary. He says, the reality of absolute objective truth is grounded in the fact that a transcendent creator God exists. The existence of God is thus the fundamental basis for truth. Man is finite, bound by an egocentric predicament, but God is not. God is infinite in every respect, including his knowledge. He is omniscient. He knows all things, and he knows them absolutely. His knowledge is complete and perfect. Absolute truth does exist. It is the contents of the mind of God. This difference between God and man is rooted in the fact of creation. Man is, in every respect, a creature, and thus is limited by nature. God alone is the creator, the eternal one who brought man and everything else into existence out of nothing, ex nihilo. 
The distinction between creator and creature is a unique kind of being. He transcends all the limitations by which creatures are inherently bound. The existence of the transcendent creator God is the basis of absolutes of any kind. The mind of God is the prototype of all reason and logic. His very essence is logos, word, reason, logic. And he cites John 1.1 there. He invites us to come and reason with him. And he cites Isaiah 1.18 there. His infinite consciousness includes all possible knowledge about all things without gaps or errors. Thus, everything he says about himself, about the nature of man, about right and wrong, about sin and salvation, about heaven and hell, is true. Thus, God and God alone is the source of absolute truth. Matthew, what do you think about do- what Dr. Cottrell says there? <laughs> I don't, don't have much to say other than, yeah, I agree with that. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so what, what I want Latter-day Saints to get from that is uh, I want them to think about the teachings that they receive uh, from Joseph Smith and his successors. Um, and I know Latter-day Saints believe that these teachings are revealed. Um, and that what they were revealed to Joseph Smith. Um, as we work through this, this essay, you'll see, I think, uh, the author of this essay, who is anonymous, um, in several places note, well, we don't really know much about X, Y, or Z. And, you know, my question there to Latter-day Saints will be, do we really not know much about X, Y, or Z, or, or is the X, Y, or Z being de-emphasized? Um, so, uh, and, and, and if it's being de-emphasized, but Smith, you believe Smith was a prophet and receiving revealed, revealed truth from God. Why, why are those things being de-emphasized? Why is the full implication of what Smith taught, uh, explicitly being de-emphasized? Um, let's see. So, uh, the, the, the passage in the, in the first section that says Latter-day Saints see all people as children of God in a full and complete sense they consider every person divine in origin, nature, and potential. Each has an eternal core and is a beloved spirit, son, or daughter of heavenly parents. So, Matthew, you, you kind of noted that um, they are placing uh, hum, humans in the same category of deity that, that God is in, correct? Mm-hmm. Why, is that, why is that a problem? Well, they don't – it's LDS – beliefs don't really make any kind of distinction between communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. So communicable meaning they're ones that are, that can be communicated to us or, you know, to, as those in the image of God and incommunicable meaning those are unique completely to God that their attributes solely belonging to God. That would include things like eternality, uh, meaning like he's never changed. He's never become, come into existence. He's never died. Uh, in, in, in the sense of his eternal divine nature. And so his divine nature doesn't change uh, his aseity, which is just a fancy word for saying that God is self. He's, he's independent. He's, you know, doesn't rely on anyone else for his existence. Uh, he's completely singular. So there's only one of him in, uh, in all of existence, uh, things like that. So these are in parts, some of the incommunicable attributes of God that, that do not belong to creation and can't be given to creation. But in Latter-day Saint thought, they don't really make that, distinction um whereas communicable attributes would be like love and mercy and justice these are things that are demonstrated in god in in a perfect way and in us they're analogically related in an imperfect way um and so some of these things we can learn and we can grow in these communicable attributes but not in the incommunicable attributes but lds thought doesn't really make that distinction it seems like we have just as much potential to be just as much god as God is. Now, they wouldn't say that they would become higher than God or that they would somehow cease to be subservient to God in any way, even if they reached exaltation. But they do believe that in every single way imaginable, basically, we can become just like God is. And that's, I mean, like you said, it just destroys the creature-creator dynamic. It, It basically blends the lines to make us in every way conceivable God. And that's just a problem because it just the Bible is just filled with Psalms that show how powerful and different and superior God is to mankind. And that God controls everything in the palm of his hand and that uh, he can change the, he can, uh, he can harden the heart of Pharaoh. He can move the, the heart of the King as he wishes. He can, God's in control of everything. But when you make us just like God is, then 
I don't know, it kind of flips the whole concept of who we are in relation to God on his head. And, and it goes back to what you're saying about being focused on who we are and on man, and then using that understanding to filter our way up to understand who God is. And that's not how we should do it. We should start with revelation, what God has revealed about himself, use that to have some kind of grasp on who God is and use that to understand how we relate to God. Yeah. Yeah. Really good uh, stuff there, Matthew. And um, you know, when I was, when I was first studying systematic theology and, and understanding the differences that you mentioned between uh, communicable attributes of, of deity and incommunicable attributes of deity, um, you know, with, with, with the Latter-day Saint view that's being presented here, um, there, as you noted, there are no incommunicable attributes of deity because um, what Latter-day Saint theology says is that at its core essence, uh, humanity is already divine. Um, and, you know, when I, when I first came out of the LDS church, uh, I had been um, spurred to read the writings of Augustine because uh, I, <laughs> I once uh, fancied myself uh, to be, uh, I wanted to be a, a, a fiction writer and I, I had written uh, several uh, fictional short stories that were um, kind of based on my experience as a Latter-day Saint. And I did a lot of reading of Latter-day Saint, other Latter-day Saint authors. Um, so, you know, Orson Scott Card is a famous uh, science fiction writer. He wrote Ender's Game. He's a Latter-day Saint. And he, uh, outside of Ender's Game, he's written uh, many uh sci-fi and fantasy series, uh, some of which explore uh, aspects of, of Latter-day Saint thought and teachings. Um, I did a lot of reading uh, of Levi Peterson, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, his work or not, Matthew, um, but he wrote uh, probably, it, it, it probably is the most famous uh, Mormon novel. It's called The Backslider, and uh, I really like that novel. Uh, like what he does with his characters in that novel. Um, but he also has a collection of short stories called the canyons of grace. And, and in there, there's a, a story called uh, St. Augustine. And um, I read that story. And, you know, after reading that story, I wanted to read, okay, who is this St. Augustine guy and what can I learn about him? Um, so I started reading, uh, you know, shortly after I left the LDS church, I started reading uh, Augustine's confessions and the city of God. And um, I was mentioning at one point to someone on, on a Facebook discussion board that I was, I was reading the city of God and I was quoting something to them that I thought was relevant to our, our discussion we were having. Um, and he asked me, you know, why are you reading, why are you reading Augustine? You know, even, even though you've left the LDS church, why would you read things that are part of the apostasy? You know, what, what value could that hold? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I meant I made the comment to that that guy at the time. You know that you know, hey, now that I'm out of the LDS Church, um, and I don't uh, I don't necessarily hold to this idea of this great apostasy where the the, the church that Christ uh, and his apostles built uh, ceased to exist on on the earth for uh, 1,700 years. Um, now that I didn't have that belief, uh, I felt like all of Christian history. Uh, all of Christian doctrine writings was mine to explore and devour and, and understand. And um, so that's, that's why I was reading Augustine. And so, you know, I'll share a couple of quotes tonight from, from Augustine and from some other uh, church fathers, um, because I think it's important to, to read some of the things that they said. So I have a quote from uh, first from Basil the Great and then from Augustine uh, related to this whole idea of are, are humans children of God by nature, or do we become children of God? Um, so Basil the Great says this uh, in uh, a writing of his called Concerning Baptism. Uh, he says, when the soul has been clothed with the Son of God, it becomes worthy of the final and perfect stage and is baptized in the name of the Father himself of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to the testimony of John, gave the power to be made sons of God. So Basil of the Great viewed uh, the potential of humanity uh, to be the sons or the children of God, right? Um, but he didn't view them as having that by nature. Uh, Augustine says this uh, in 
uh, his writing called On Nature and Grace. He says, when any person is considered to be among the children of God, such an achievement must not be considered to have been accomplished by their ability alone. This ability they have received through the grace of God, because they did not possess it in a nature that has become corrupted and depraved. Um, so some of these I want to call out as we work through um, the essay. I've got one more from Augustine, and then we'll move on uh, to uh, something else. Um he says in uh, Sermon 166.4, Augustine says, I mean, you are not being told not to be a human in the sense that you are to be a beast, but rather that you are to be among those to whom, quote, he gave the right to become the children of God, end quote. God, you see, wants to make you a God, not by nature, of course, like the one whom he begot, but by his gift and by adoption. For just as he, through being humbled, came to share your mortality. So through lifting you up, he brings you to share his immortality. So Augustine kind of is touching on some of the incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes of, of God there, uh, right, Matthew? He's saying, um, you don't possess immortality by nature. God does, the son does, but humans don't. But because Christ became human, because he humbled himself, and took on flesh, uh, he will lift humanity to immortality, uh, something that they don't possess uh, by nature. Um, and that kind of brings me to a, to a question that I have as I as I read through this uh, essay, Matthew. And I want to I want to get your thoughts on it. So um, we've kind of noted that by saying that uh, people are children of God, humans are children of God inherently and by nature are divine in origin. Um, what, what is it about this idea of pre-existent intelligences that Latter-day Saints have in their theology that make it a, a quote-unquote divine nature? Mm. What does it make it? How does it make it a divine nature? Their, their pre-mortality as intelligences? Right. Trying to make sure I understand the question fully. So, um, well, I would say that they believe that God was also an intelligence, right? That he was once an intelligence that was uh, like us. And then he was organized into a spirit body, and then he progressed to godhood. Uh, at least that's traditionally that was that's what was taught is that God the Father was in every way like us, and that's from the King Paul discourse. And I'll just quote that real quick because I had that up. It says uh, so. This is Joseph Smith. It was it, it wasn't the discourse for a king. For those who don't know, his name was King Paul. It was his funeral discourse. So Joseph Smith says here, quote: "I will go back to the beginning before the world was to show what kind of a being God is." What sort of a being was God in the beginning? Open your ears here, all ye ends of the earth, for I'm going to prove it to you by the Bible and to tell you the designs of God in relation to the human race and why he interferes with the affairs of man. God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. That is the great secret. If the veil were rent today and the great God who holds this, this world in its orbit and who upholds all worlds and all things by his power was to make himself visible, I say if you were to see him today, you would see him like a man in form like yourselves in all the person, image, and very form as a man. For Adam was created in the very fashion, image, and likeness of God and received instruction from and walked, talked, and conversed with him as one man talks and communes with another, uh, close quote. So uh, he basically talks later on how he says, quote, we have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute that idea and take away the veil so that you may see, close quote. So Smith basically talks about how in, basically in every single way imaginable God is exactly like us. So we are divine in the sense that it, it's kind of reverse. It's not that we are divine. It's that God is in every way like a human. So there really is no distinction between the divine and the human nature. It's the same thing. But like you were talking about uh, quoting the church fathers and, and I, and I had some quotes too, that I was going to share in the next section. Uh, they did see a distinction and the Bible shows a distinction between the human and divine natures, but in LDS thought they're the same thing. At least it seems like to me. Just different, different in deg degrees, different in progression, different in perfection. So they would see that God is the perfected state of man, whereas we are in, in, in an imperfect state. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's how they would uh, how they would describe it. Um, so I guess my question for Latter Day Saints is: Why is it necessary for you to view human nature as inherently divine versus? Uh, transformed into divine by the work of Jesus Christ, which is the Orthodox Christian view. Um, I think that would be my question to Latter-day Saints. I understand that it's it's coming from the teaching of Joseph Smith, but 
you know, from a, from a theological perspective, I would want to ask the question why. Um, so we've introduced into the discussion kind of this concept of intelligences. Um, and this is something that in many ways, Latter-day Saints view as unique to Joseph Smith. Um, and I'd like to point out that it's not uh, unique to Joseph Smith. It's, it's something that was um, initially uh, kind of developed within the theology of a man named Origen, um, Oregon Adamantius. <laughs> I listened to a, a podcast and I'll link to a couple of podcasts about Origen. Uh, he was born in the year 185 uh, in Alexandria in Egypt. And he was uh, born and raised a Christian, which was unique for the time because at that time, the, the Christian movement was still pretty new. So there weren't a whole lot of uh, Christian families uh, throughout the world. So it was pretty unique for him to have been born uh, and raised a Christian. His father was martyred um, and he also wanted to be martyred uh, for his faith. Uh, but his mother didn't allow that. She hid his clothes from him so that he couldn't run out into the to where his father was being martyred without having to run out naked. So um, she saved him from from martyrdom. Um, but he was he's considered to be uh, one of the most influential uh, early writers in the Christian faith. Um, the reason for that is uh, he was trained as a philosopher. Uh, Plotinus was a fellow student uh, of their their, te- their Greek philosophy teacher. Um, Plotinus developed uh, Neoplatonism, um, so his his education was top notch uh, as a, as a Greek philosopher. Uh, so the way that he thought was uh, Greek in nature, <laughs> in many ways. And but he was also committed to uh, the Hebrew Scriptures, so the Old Testament. Um, he. He's important because he uh, he's he did the first uh, he was the f- a first in several ways. Uh, one of those is that he created a work called the Hexapla, which is really uh, it's it's kind of like the first um, textual criticism <laughs> approach to uh, the Old Testament. He took six different sources for the Old Testament text, the the Hebrew text, the Septuagint. He had one, um, I'm trying to remember the others he had, but he had six different uh, texts of the Old Testament and put them side by side in columns. Um, A massive work, as you can imagine, with with as much text as is in the the Old Testament. Um, And his his idea was the same as the idea of of modern textual critics was to find the uh, original extant text, right? The the first text. Um, Let's let's recognize that there are differences in translations. Um, in his day, the big differences that were often called out were the differences between the Greek Septuagint, which is the, the version of the Old Testament that the Christians tended to use, uh, and the Hebrew versions. Um, there were some differences. And so he did this whole text critical work, the Hexapla, which is largely lost to history, but it's it was very super important during his lifetime. And then the other way that he is a first is he's kind of the first to create a systematic theology uh, of, of Christian thought. Um, and that book, that work of his is called De Principi. It means in Latin, it means um, uh, on first things. And in that work, he develops this idea that, uh, and he does it based on what he sees around him. So we talked a little bit about uh, reasoning from humanity to God, being anthropocentric, that's that's kind of what Origen did in his reasoning about intelligences, right? He looks around him and he sees that there are varieties of people who, you know, some of whom are more advanced spiritually than others. Uh, some of them are, you know, fully debased in sin and debauchery. Others are are more uh, seem to be more elevated spiritually. And so he asks the question, you know, why would, why would that be the case, right? If God is no respecter of persons, why in this reality, this world we live in, would there be any kind of variation in the level of spirituality of people? Um, and where he reasons from there is very similar to what you find in Latter-day Saint thought, uh, which is, again, 
something that in modern Latter-day Saint thought is rejected and kind of downplayed, but there's this idea that people were placed into certain circumstances in this life based on what they did or didn't do in a pre-existent life as a spirit, as an intelligence. Um, that that doctrine, that, that kind of thought played uh, very heavily in early Latter-day Saint teachings, uh, even up, in, up through the 1960s. Um, it's not a teaching today that Latter-day Saints readily accept, but it is something that uh, Origen reasoned to as well. Um, so if you're interested uh, and you want to see how that plays out in early Christian thought, you know, go read uh, those sections of, of Origen's De Principi. Um, but Origen's teachings on the preexistence of souls uh, and uh, some of his other teachings were uh, declared heresy uh, at the Second, uh, Second Council of Constantinople. Um, some church history scholars argue that uh, the anathemas that are uh, there in the, second, the, the records of the Second Council of Constantinople, that the anathemas against Oregon or origin should not be there because they were actually um, brought in. Well, it wasn't the main topic of that council. Uh, those anathemas were brought in from a separate synod that had been held uh, where they had been declared to be um, a heresy and that they were brought in politically into the second council of Constantinople um, in order to give the whole, you know, premature of the, the whole church to these anathemas uh, against origin. So, um, but just just bring I just bring that in because I think it's important for Latter Day Saints to understand that that these ideas, uh, very few of the ideas that Joseph Smith presented uh, as revelation are unique to him. They they have they have been presented at one time or another uh, by someone else in the history of the church or some other uh, person who was not a, a Christian but was a, a Gnostic or a Marcionite. Uh, or or what have you that uh, was deemed a heretic. So um, these ideas are not unique. Uh, you you can ask the question, how did Joseph Smith know about them? Um, and that's a that's a question worth investigating. Um, but the 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 point is that they're not unique to him. They do show up other times in Christian history. So I just talked for a long time, Matthew. I want to get your thoughts on what I said. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Uh, basically. It's we can't say for sure that Joseph Smith got this idea from Origin, but we can say for certain that he wasn't the first to have that idea. So I think it's good to show that uh, that background. Um, yeah, it's I wanted to share too from the King Fall discourse really quickly, just in case there are some LDS out there that that say that we don't, you know, the LDS don't believe that in intelligences or that they are eternal with God because you know a lot of times we'll talk to LDS and they'll say we don't believe that, even though I was taught it all my life. Uh, so here in the, in the King Follow Discourse, just really quickly, um, Joseph Smith talks about the soul being eternal. Uh, so in that same discourse I shared earlier, he says, quote, the soul, the mind of man, the immortal spirit, where did it come from? All learned men and doctors of divinity say that God created it in the beginning, but it is not so. The very idea lessens man in my estimation. We say that God himself is a self-existing being. Man does exist upon the same principles. Um, and then later he says, he talks about the Bible. It does not say in the Hebrew that God created the spirit of man. It says, quote, God made man of the earth and put him to him out of spirit and so became a living body. The, man or, the mind or the intelligence which man possesses is co-equal with God himself. Later, he also says, is it logical to say that the intelligence of spirits is immortal and yet that it has a beginning? The intelligence of spirits had no beginning. Neither will it have an end. That is good logic. That which has a beginning may have an end. There never was a time when there were not spirits, for they are co-equal with our Father in heaven. Close quote. So that's the entire quote from uh, Smith. So it took different parts of the King Paul discourse. So yeah, I think it's important to note that he did teach this, that spirit intelligences were eternal and that uh, you know this primordial existence. And there's you can find that idea in Origin and in others. I don't know if Swedenborg had that idea. I know that Swedenborg was kind of a big influence on Smith. I don't really know much about his theology, but... Maybe that's a potential source of his views on, you know, like a, a, an inspiration for his views on, you know, the premortal existence. But, but uh, yeah, we'll talk a little bit more. The, the essay talks about where he got this first idea about premortal existence. They say that the Book of Mormon could have been a source of that. But, yeah, it's a lot of interesting stuff. You're listening to Outer Brightness, a podcast for post-Mormons who are drawn by God 
to walk with Jesus rather than turn away. Outer brightness, outer brightness, outer brightness. There's no weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth here, except when Michael's hangry that is, hangry that is, hangry that is. We were all born and raised in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith. All of us have left that religion and have been drawn to faith in Jesus Christ based on biblical teachings. The name of our podcast, Outer Brightness, reflects John 1, 9, which calls Jesus the true light, which gives light to everyone. We have found life beyond Mormonism to be brighter than we were told it would be, and the light we have is not our own. It comes to us from without, thus Outer Brightness. Our purpose is to share our journeys of faith and what God has done in drawing us to His Son, We have conversations about all aspects of that transition, the fears, challenges, joys, and everything in between. We're glad you found us, and we hope you'll stick around. All right, so we've covered the overview. Um, We'll jump into the next section of the essay. Uh, What does the Bible say about humans' divine potential? Several biblical passages intimate that humans can become like God. The likeness of humans to God is emphasized in the first chapter of Genesis. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. After Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God said they had, quote, become as one of us, end quote, suggesting that a process of approaching godliness was already underway. Later in the Old Testament, a passage in the book of Psalms declares, quote, I have said ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, end quote. New Testament passages also point to this doctrine. When Jesus was accused of blasphemy on the grounds that, quote, thou being a man makest thyself God, end quote, he responded echoing Psalms, quote, is, is it not written in your law, I said ye are gods, end quote. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus commanded his disciples to become perfect, even as your father in heaven, which is even as your father, which is in heaven is perfect. In turn, the apostle Peter referred to the savior's exceeding great and precious promises that we might become partakers of the divine nature. The apostle Paul taught that we are the offspring of God and emphasized that as such, we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. The book of revelation contains a promise from Jesus Christ that to him that overcometh, I will grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. These passages can be interpreted in different ways, yet by viewing them through the clarifying lens of revelations received by Joseph Smith, Latter-day Saints see these scriptures as straightforward expressions of humanity's divine nature and potential. Many other Christians read the same passages far more metaphorically because they experience the Bible through the lens of doctrinal interpretations that developed over time after the period of after the period described in the New Testament. All right, Matthew, thoughts on that section? Uh, let's see. So, yeah, it, this is kind of what we're taught, at least from what I recall. Uh, this is kind of like the, the standard presentation of how of how man is like God based on biblical passages, and that's what a lot of Latter Day Saints will use also in our discussion groups and missionaries. I'll share these passages and use these kind of same lines of logic. Um, so yeah, there's a lot we could talk about here. Uh, there, uh, I've got a lot of tabs up. Oh shoot, I just closed one. But yeah, there there are some. Uh, I, th- I was reading quotes about people in church history kind of use that same quote uh, in a similar way, where they 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 would say the, these um, these quotes about uh, how you are gods and taking that to mean that you know you can become like God. Um, I was reading a quote from Irenaeus. Uh, he said that. God had become what we are, that we, he might bring us to be even what he is himself was quote. And then he says, he added quote, do we cast blame on him, God, because we are not made gods from the beginning, but were at first created merely as men. And then later as gods, although God has adopted this course out of his pure benevolence that no one may charge him with discrimination or stinginess. He declares, I have said, ye are gods and all of you are sons of the most high or as necessary at first that nature be exhibited. Then after that, what was mortal would be conquered and swallowed up in immortality. So, yeah, there are people in church history, I think, that that quote uh, that psalm, Psalm 82, right, um, that says you are gods and use that to demonstrate or in the belief that God created us um, to become like, you know, to become gods. Um, let's see. There's another quote I had, Clement of Alexandria. He said, yeah, I say the word of God became a man so that you might learn from a man how to become a god. And I, I think that's a very similar quote to Athanasius. I think we've quoted that already. 
where he said the word was made flesh in order that we might be made gods. So there's this concept of using those same passages in a sense, but there's always this fundamental different understanding of who God is. They, they didn't look at this and say, oh, God must be exactly like us, just in a better perfected form. So maybe we'll get more into that in, in the, the next section when we talk about church history. Yeah, but, can, you read, can you read that first quote you wrote? I think it was from Irenaeus. Can you read that again? Because he makes that point, right? That there's a difference. Yeah. So uh, let's see, Irenaeus. So he was from 130 to 202. He said that God had become what we are, that he might bring us to be even what he is himself. And then he added, quote, do we cast blame on him, God, because we were not made gods from the beginning, but were at first created merely as men and then later as gods. Although God has adopted this course out of his pure benevolence, that no one may charge him with discrimination or stinginess, he declares, I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. And then later he says, for it was necessary at first that nature be exhibited, then after that what was mortal would be conquered and swallowed up in mortality. So it seems like, yeah, like he's saying that humanity is not the same thing as the divinity because that humanity needs to be swallowed up in this, in, in, yeah, and to become what we will become. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. He, he, he notes that there's this difference, right? That, that we weren't made in the beginning God, but that that's what, um, I mean, that's exactly what Latter-day Saint teaching is, right? Is that by nature, we are divine. We are gods in embryo from the beginning, right? We also were in the beginning with, with God, which is what Doctrine and Covenants uh, section 92 uh, kind of recasts John one as saying. Um, and so um We've kind of been asking and 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 kind of uh, walking around uh, a question that I'd kind of like to raise uh, more explicitly right now is: um, Does this teaching that we were we preexisted as intelligences does that do damage to the teaching about the uniqueness of the logos in John one? What do you think, Matthew? Could you repeat that? I need to absorb this. The, the LDS teaching that we are, we were in the beginning with God as intelligences. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that do damage to the teaching of John chapter one about the uniqueness of the logos? Hmm. Yeah, that's good. That's deep. I think, I think it, it might, I guess they would explain that. Well, I always believed when I was Latter-day Saint that Jesus was unique in the sense that he was the firstborn son of God, mm-hmm. the firstborn literal son. And by, because of that, he had certain dira- divine prerogatives, uh, including the, the the ability of somehow becoming God without a body because he attained unto Godhood is what Bruce McConkie would say frequently. He attained unto Godhood in his pre-mortal state. And um, because of that, he was sinless. He he was able to become sa- to be the savior of man. And so he was special in that sense. But in, in terms of nature, I don't think you could say he's any different. Right. Exactly. Um, I will link to a... Uh, uh, as I mentioned, a, a, a podcast about Oregon um, uh, origin. It's it's difficult to know which way to say that with the with the Greek uh, G gamma. But um, I thought it was interesting in that in that podcast. I'll just talk about it a little bit. There's a there's a Roman Catholic uh, priest is one of the uh, people speaking in the podcast, and then there's there's a uh, another guy who's kind of like the host, um, and I and he seems more like a lay person. Uh, in the way that he uh, discusses things and, and asks questions of the, of the priest. So the priest is talking about origin and, and his teachings on uh, the preexistence of souls. And uh, the, the other gentleman in the podcast, you know, asks the question, well, if, if, if that's the case, why would they take on bodies? Right. Um, and that goes directly to the heart of what you were just kind of discussing there, Matthew is like, could Jesus is, or Jehovah in, in Latter-day Saint thought as the firstborn uh, spirit son of Elohim uh, has this divine prerogative to become God uh, without taking on a body um, and therefore is somehow still unique. And I've, you know, this, this, that point has been argued to me um, by, by other Latter-day Saints when I've, when I've raised these concerns. Um, but the question then becomes like, like the, the Catholic asks in that, podcast why why then would anyone take on bodies if it's if you're already divine if you're already deity in nature why would you take on a body so uh, i think latter-day saints would do well to think more deeply uh, about that question 
Um, some of the other things I wanted to raise from this section of the essay, uh, you know, they quote uh, Peter um, talking about the exceeding great and precious promises that we might become partakers of the divine nature, um, you know, become as in future tense. Um, again, there, there's that, that difference, right, between what Latter-day Saint theology is, that we are already divine in nature, um, even if you're going to say it's in seed form. Um, and the teaching of the New Testament, which is we become partakers of the divine nature through Christ. And, and this is why I think it's so important to raise that question about the uniqueness of the Logos. I had a very detailed uh, discussion with uh, Brett Dennis, who we've had on the podcast before, um, to talk to debate the, the, the book of Abraham. Um, we had a, an, an in-depth conversation uh, on our Facebook post about our episode uh, on creation ex nihilo, where he and I went back and forth discussing why uh, John 1, the great prologue, uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Uh, why that is so important uh, in its teaching about who Jesus Christ is. Um, you know, I think I've talked before that my, my uncle, uh, my uncle Carl bought my dad a a placard uh, that he hung in our hung in our home. It was a painting of Jesus uh, on the morning of the resurrection, and it had John uh, one one to three uh, quoted on it. And my dad hung that in our home where I could see it often, and I read it often. And it's something that I thought about and rolled around in my mind a lot compared with what I was being taught as a teenager, uh, as a Latter Day Saint about the nature of God and the nature of humanity, as discussed in this essay, and. Um, realized that there were some core uh, problems for uh, Latter-day Saint theology that are presented there in that first, those first few verses of the Gospel of John. Um, it's absolutely essential that Jesus be unique, that Jesus be God. Uh, humanity cannot be raised to uh, divinity, cannot be raised to immortality, uh, except God come down among us. And, raise, and, that, and the, the church fathers are very explicit about this. They understood what what John was teaching there. Um, so, uh, you know, Brett ultimately landed when I asked him directly: "Is is is do you view the Logos as unique?" And he said, "No, absolutely not." Um, that that's a, to me that is a major problem um, for your theology because if if Jesus is not the unique Son of God, there is no salvation. So these these the issues that are wrapped up in this essay are are are, are pretty severe. Um, the other question I have for you, Matthew, uh, is, you know, they, they quote from a number of passages here in this section, uh, John 10, 33 to 34, Matthew 5, 48, 2 Peter 1, 4, Acts 17, 29, Romans 8, 16 to 17, and Revelation 3, 21. Um, we don't need to look them up and, and go through them each, I don't think, because they're quoted here, but they, they kind of brush off uh, Christian understanding of these passages by saying that uh, Christians generally understand these more metaphorically. So I'm going to ask you, do you, do you understand these pas passages more metaphorically as a Christian? So, so like the passages were like in John 10, where he quotes Psalm 82 and says, uh, you're gods and all that. Um, I'm not sure if I, I don't know. Each one has its own context. So it's kind of hard to really describe all of them. Um, I, I go back and forth in terms of how to interpret uh, Psalm 82, but it's, but at the same time, I, I understand it in the sense that when God speaks of gods, you know, um, or the sons of God, when the Old Testament talks about the sons of God, it's talking, it's, it never refers to them as being of the same species or order or likeness as Yahweh, you know, the God of Israel. He's, he, he, he's a completely different kind and unique type of being. So when we talk about these gods or these sons of God, he's not referring to them as, as if they were of the same order or likeness they're they're seen as these subordinate uh beings these these spiritual creations that are sub, you know they're subordinate to god's authority and sovereign and so we have to understand it in that context instead of saying oh here's the word god so that must be talking just like you know the god of all creation you know every we have to take everything in, in its proper context and so you know um and the way jesus used psalm 82 it could be understood in multiple ways but you know it could be understood to say that Jesus was quoting that to say that, okay, it's saying that you, whether it's talking about all of humanity or you as judges in Israel, you in some sense can be called gods. 
So why is it wrong for me to take on the title, you know, the son of God, you know? So whether it's saying that you are gods in terms of speaking, you know, of men, or if it's talking about judges in Israel were called gods because it sat in judgment over Israel and as if they were in the place of God. And so why, you know, if it's okay for you to be called gods, why is it wrong for me to call myself the son of God? That's kind of one, one, one way that's been interpreted. So I don't know. I, I can't really say if it's metaphorical or, or analogical. It's, it's, it's more just like having an understanding of what does it mean? What, what does the word gods in that context actually, you know, it's, it's like, I don't know. It kind of bugs me sometimes when you talk with, like, even with some other Christians, you know, like in, in their particular understanding of a passage, they'll be like, well, just read it. You either believe it or you don't believe it, you know, as if like, there's no interpretation required, you know? And, and sometimes that, that kind of bothers me. So a lot of times when that happens with LDS, they say, well, do you believe it or not? You know, you are gods. Do you believe you're a God or not? I'm like, well, it's a little bit deeper than that. You know, it's not just, are you a God or not? You know, you have to, under, you have to define the terms. You have to take in all your presuppositions as, as you know, the background of how you would understand that text. So it's, I don't know. I didn't really give a solid answer, but <laughs> it's a, it's a complicated issue. So I, I just wanted to kind of call out that um, it, I don't think it's right for the essay to claim that, that, Christians uh, read these same passages far more metaphorically. Um, I, I don't think Christians, you know, Christians have uh, a theology of glorification of believers, uh, sanctification and ultimate glorification of believers uh, through Christ. Um, and so, uh, you know, to say that that we only view these passages, the passages that speak of, of human potential in Christ, um as metaphorical, I don't think that's correct. Uh, with regards to the DNC or not the DNC, the, the, the Psalm 82 uh, passage uh, and where Jesus quotes that in John 10 um, to those who were critiquing him for taking on the title of son of God. Um, it If he is quoting that to say, uh, look, your law says that you're God's too, so why are you upset from at me for saying I'm just one of you? That doesn't make any kind of sense, right? He recognizes that they recognize that he is making a claim about his uniqueness. And he's going to the Old Testament to show them that it makes sense for him to claim this. Now, why it would make sense for him to claim that, claim that um about Psalm 82 is, is a, is a question that, that, you know, you can get into uh, quite a bit. There are varying various views of scholars. Some scholars believe that they were um, human judges in Israel that were being condemned in Psalm 82. Uh, other scholars believe that they were uh, angels uh, being condemned there in Psalm 82 angels who had been given uh, by God uh, certain uh, responsibilities uh, over peoples of the earth. And so, um, and, and, and that all under the authority of Yahweh, as you were saying, as, as a unique, um, uh, uniquely natured being, um, compared with, with angels. So, um, various ways of interpreting that, but it doesn't make sense to me that Jesus would be claiming, Hey, I'm just one of you, which is ultimately the way Latter-day Saints read it. Yeah. And even, even Eastern Orthodox, they'll, I've seen, I haven't read really long treatises, but like when I read introductions to the doctrine of theosis, a lot of times I'll quote that same passage. And, and so they'll use that in kind of that's a similar context, but Eastern Orthodox are still very Trinitarian. You know, they, they don't believe that Jesus was saying, as you were saying that, that, Hey, I'm just one, I'm just like you. I'm, I'm exactly like you, you know, I'm, I, I'm a God, just like you, you know, like you're God, you're, we're all divine. They don't say that they have a very strong Trinitarian theology, you know, and they, and, uh, but, but they do believe in theosis and we'll talk about that later, but, um, but yeah, they, they don't use it in the same sense that Latter-day Saints use it. And that gets iffy because Latter-day Saints will often quote early church fathers as supporting their view of eternal progression. But really the whole, if you understand the context of the early church fathers and of Eastern Orthodoxy, then they would understand that they're kind of abusing those quotes or misusing them. Right. And that's a good segue into the next section. So take it away. Okay. We thank you for tuning into this episode of the Outer Brightness Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. Please visit the Outer Brightness Podcast page on Facebook. Feel free to send us a message there with comments or questions by clicking send a message at the top of the page, and we would appreciate it if you give the page a like. We also have an Outer Brightness group on Facebook where you can join and interact with us and others as we discuss the podcast, past episodes, and suggestions for future episodes, etc. 
You can also send us an email at outerbrightness at gmail.com. We hope to hear from you soon. You can subscribe to the Outer Brightness podcast on Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Podbean, Spotify, and Stitcher. Also, you can check out our new YouTube channel, and if you like it, be sure to lay hands on that subscribe button and confirm it. If you like what you hear, please give us a rating and review wherever you listen and help spread the word. You can also connect with Michael the Ex-Mormon Apologist at FromWaterToWine.org, where he blogs, and sometimes Paul and Matthew do as well. Music for the Outer Brightness podcast is graciously provided by the talented Brianna Flournoy and by Adams Road. Learn more about Adams Road by visiting their ministry page at adamsroadministry.com. Stay bright, flyer flies. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, the Word made flesh, the risen Son. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the Word of the Lord endures forever. All this world is in decay, but the Word of our church would remain upon this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail